We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Welcome, everybody. Stay back with Sense of Fidelity. I'm coming at you with Father Paul Pearson at the Oratory of Toronto. By the way, if you're scoring at home, he actually taught two of the priests on this channel. We won't release their <laughs> names, but they know it's. So, what I wanted to do was one of their priests was talking about joy, no sunshine, pa uh, sunshine patriots, wintertime soldiers, things like that, having joy during a time of distress or what we're in keeping your morale up. So I asked Father about doing this since we did this on another channel a few months ago. So, Father, thank you again for coming in, and uh, good to see you. <laughs> yeah, I was actually thinking about this exact topic. Um, I, we have Mother Teresa sisters across the street from us, and each Monday I they were at the convent saying Mass for them. And this Monday, the reading was, first reading was from the Book of Revelation. I was like beginning the, those, the discourses to the seven churches. Um, that always reminds me of the end of the year is coming, you know. The, the, and uh, but the, the the beginning of the second chapter said to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Here are these people, that's, that's the, the, the main part of the reading of the first four verses of the second chapter of Revelation. But the, the sort of interesting thing is that God recognizes that the people of Ephesus are going through hell on earth. They're being persecuted terribly. And he recognizes that they're, they're holding up. They're not letting go. They're enduring. And that's just the sort of language he uses, patiently enduring. But you know, sometimes patiently enduring isn't enough. <laughs> because when you just sort of grit your teeth and bear it, uh, well, first of all, it's not, it's not very Christian looking. And secondly, it's also something that isn't a long-term strategy because it eats you away. It's sort of acidic spiritually. It slowly dissolves your joy and dissolves your, your trust in God. And so it's almost like running on batteries. You can do it for a little while, but if you do it forever, sooner or later, those batteries are gonna, are gonna wear out. Right. They're gonna power down. And that's what he saw happening in the people of Ephesus, that they were gradually sort of just powering down. They weren't keeping that spirit of joy because they were just in endurance mode. And we live in a world now where getting into endurance mode as a Catholic is pretty easy. <laughs> oh, you, you can look at the secular news, you can look at church news, you can go anywhere. Yeah, it's coming at all angles. 
isn't it? Yeah. And so the idea that somehow, you know, we're going to hell in a handbasket is, especially as I get older, it's easier and easier to think, you know, it didn't used to be this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah back when I was young. Um, and so it's easy to get frustrated with the whole thing and say, okay, I might not have to do this much longer, you know? God, how much more time do I have? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, that's been yeah. a couple of things. Like uh, one priest that uh, he he went through the Old Testament uh, characters and talked about like Job, Abraham, Noah, yep. and all those that went through just terrible times. Yeah, and how they persevered. And at the end of their trials, it was joyful. They 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 made it through. They they fought the good fight, as Saint Paul would say. Yeah, and. But when you get into the New Testament, you don't see it as much as the old because you got Calvary, you got the cross right there. Everybody sees that part. Yeah. And since we're we see the victory, kind of like I was telling you off camera, I got the altarpiece from England, which is the English Mars. There's guys getting their hearts taken out, pulled out, ripped out, quartered, yeah. hung, drawn, quartered, the whole shebang, and over the over the cross it says Ivan Cavantes. Which I'm pretty sure now somebody correct me I'm wrong saying they walked to joy, walked with joy. Uh -huh. So how's I would say knowledge, knowing about the faith, knowing about the, the martyrs, preparing yeah. yourself like that, not treating it as a not like a fair not saying it's a fair result, but not treating it like it's oh well that's yeah. cool for them. Now how yeah. are we gonna do it? But as a way right. to prepare like watching in sports, you watch the Hall of Famers. And you want to imitate them in whatever sport you're looking at. Mm -hmm. How can people get that sense to, you know, after seeing all this come from all angles, to smile? Yeah, yeah. How do I hit the Roger Federer backhand spiritually? <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing on that one. <laughs> yeah, well, my my topspin backhand isn't what it used to be. Um, the um, I think the answer is we have to get out of endurance mode. We, we can't just sort of say, oh my goodness, how long is this gonna last? I don't know if I can make it, but uh, yeah. I will just you know tighten my jaw and bear down. I grew up in a German community, a Mennonite community, and my grandmother used to say when people were being, being patient, that they were being patient with the square jaw and they go, <laughs> and I know exactly what she meant. You'd sort of clench your jaw down like this and the corners of your mouth turned down. And it's just determination. Well, if determination is all that we have, as I said, that becomes exhausting. What we need to do is to shift from endurance mode to a more trusting, confident mode in God's providence. Because after all, if we believe that this is happening right now. I could ask myself three questions. My seminarians get sick of these questions. I ask them all the time. Um, they don't like something. I said, does God know this is happening? And they say, um, well, yes, I, I suppose so. God knows everything. I said, exactly. I said, second question, could God make this different? And they stop and think and say, well, I suppose he could make it different because he can do anything. I said, exactly, he's God. He knows everything and he can do anything. But did this thing still happen? I said, yes. I said, well, what does that mean then? God knows it and he didn't change it. Therefore, he must have something in mind for it. 
You see, I think we just look at the world and think, this is a mess, this is a disaster, it's all falling apart. This can't be God's will. Mm -hmm. well, why not? God's will works through the darndest pathways. I remind people when they're going through bad times that God brought about our salvation through the wonderful cast of characters of Pontius Pilate, King Herod, and Judas Iscariot. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he can work through your politicians and your mother-in-law and everybody, you know? Um, it really is the fact that God, for all of human history, has worked through our mess and turned it into something. Mm -hmm. So when you ask the question, what is happening? Why is this happening? We're sort of getting it wrong. We need to ask ourselves, what is God doing here? He's doing something. I know that. I know that by faith. What he's doing, I don't always, I very frequent, infrequently know. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I always <laughs> like that Rudy line, the movie Rudy, when he goes, I've learned two things since I've been a priest. There is a God, uh, and I'm not him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty good, yeah. Um, but I, I think knowing that there is a plan, even if I don't know what it is, changes things. And now I can sort of say in my prayer, okay, God, this is a big mess. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you're going to do with this. And, um, and being on the lookout for those little things. I mean, here in the seminary, on March 17th, when Canada shut down, I had my last in-person class. We had our last mass before the church is closed. St. Patrick, that was the last day. And at first I'm thinking, really? I'm trying to train priests. I'm trying to save mass. Why won't you let me do my job? But you know, through it all, our seminarians finished their school year. We had 15 of our alumni ordained this summer um, to the priesthood. Um, and you know, our summer school and our classes now are available not only in person, but online because we were forced, despite our old fashioned tendencies, to learn to use things like Skype and Zoom. And <laughs> we're now doing all these things, which we never did before. And God needed to twist our arms behind our back before we do it. So now I, you know, I had somebody from summer school this year from Kazakhstan. She was getting up in the middle of the night to watch these classes in real time. Uh -huh. Would that have happened before COVID? Not at all. Now, I don't like it much. I'm getting tired of it all. I'm glad to be able to talk in the privacy of my own room without wearing a mask. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's been a long time now. It's now been, what, eight months since that lockdown. Just almost exactly. Eight months from the 15 days the flattening curve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, um, they flattened a lot of other things instead yeah. of the curve, <laughs> me included. Um, but I, I look back now and say, you know, my life has changed. I've had much more quiet personal time. Uh -huh. And that personal time is either going to be destructive if I'm pining away for the fact that I could be seeing people, or I could turn it into something productive if I'm saying, well, this is what God sent me. I, I better make use of it. And because he, he has something in mind. Yeah, there's been a couple of people that will get on me for different shows that we've done. And they go, how can you laugh during what you just got done saying? I'm like, back when yeah. I'm thinking, well, one, I'm in the one true faith. So I'm happy about that. That should give us joy. 
Yeah. Uh, exactly. I walk in from work and I see my two little ones playing and uh, playing on the carpet, laughing, giggling, and about like that. I can that takes away everything for. I don't even have a thought, and I and I read stuff that most people don't read. Yeah. <laughs> What's co- what these guys like Klaus Schwab and them are planning, mm-hmm. and I'm 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 happy as a kite, just 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 there. And then obviously yeah. you think about the the one story in uniform of God's will when uh, that monk that was performing all these miracles, and they're going, this guy just does nothing. What's what's so special about him? And you know, he relates to his superior that uh, when uh, the uh, the monastery got burnt to the ground and stolen. Uh-huh. He said, oh, it was God's will. And when this happened, it was God's will. When that got destroyed, it was God's will. He goes, how do you, how do, you do that? He goes, well, if I'm at peace with it. If God wants it to rain, then I want it to rain. If God wants it to be 150 degrees, I want it to be 150 degrees. How do we get, how do we change our mind from what I want to uniforming to his will, what mm-hmm. is going on currently? Well, I think that Whenever you're working on the virtue of trust, and that's really what this goes back to, this whole being confident about providence is really about developing the virtue of trust or the theological virtue of hope, which is really the same thing. Confidence, hope, trust, they all come together. And I think we try to learn trust as almost a sort of mental self-hypnosis. Trust, 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 trust. And that doesn't work. We know that's fake. so the only real way to trust, and this is a trick I sort of picked up on through St. Augustine. I'm reading through St. Augustine, and he says, you know, faith is in the intellect, charity is in the will, uh-huh. and hope, which is of things yet to come, is in the memory. I said, the memory, that's of the past. And so, but as I'm thinking about it, I said, well, what makes you confident about the future? It's only your God's track record with you in the past. And so if you're going to learn trust, you have to learn Thanksgiving. And of course, we're coming up to, I'm, as an expatriate American up here in Canada, <laughs> I, I I keep both Thanksgivings. You have both calendars up there. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Any, any opportunity I have for pumpkin pie, I'll take. <laughs> and uh, so it's a, it's a wonderful thing to this Thanksgiving because what it does is not only is it good manners on our part to say thank you to God for all the things he's given us, but it actually makes us reflect on all that we've been given. And I think that's particularly important that we have a few things in our life that we can go back to where we were sure it was going to be a disaster and God pulled the spiritual rabbit out of the hat again. I, for me, the story I go back to all the time is a particularly painful story for me at the, at, at the time, but it turned into something wonderful. I was in the finals of a scholarship competition and I had to travel f- for the finals and there's fancy dinner party and, you know, it's, it's a big deal. And I made it through one stage and was going to the next stage. And the interview process sort of fell apart at the last minute because one of the people heard that I'd just become a Catholic and told me, in the interview that it, I couldn't be a good historian because I was biased. <laughs> I said, well, everybody has a point of view. And so, but this, it sort of fell apart a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, when they announced the winners, they announced this girl's name and they announced a guy's name. And all the people at the interview, all the other 12 candidates 
turned towards me and clapped because they all thought I won. But it was somebody else's name. Mm. And as a result of this, I think, an injustice, I had to come to my second choice of schools, which was the University of Toronto. And if I hadn't come here, I would have never have met my community. I would have never gotten the education that I received. I would have wouldn't have trained these hundreds of seminarians and you know now over two hundred priests. You know what would my life have been like <laughs> if I if I'd actually gotten what I thought I really deserved? If, if this tragedy hadn't happened in my life, <laughs> my brother-in-law and uh, my my sister-in-law would love it if I said uh, uh, Garth Brooks unanswered unanswered prayers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. Our lives are filled with these issues. And you know, we don't, we only look at them, naturally speaking, as this sort of di personal disaster. And you know, I can, if I tell this story in any more detail than I did right now, I can actually get my hands into fists yeah. and, get, and get ready to call the American Civil Liberties Union and launch a lawsuit, uh, which was actually suggested to me at the time, um, religious discrimination. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, Simultaneously, I can hold that that interviewer who happened to be a judge, which made it even worse, um, that interviewer who is so wrong was God's instrument. And God worked through him like he worked through Pontius Pilate, King Herod, and Judas Iscariot, because God had a plan to get me to Toronto. And I have to choose whether I'm going to get upset about the injustice or see the hand of God behind it. And that's the choice we have to make. And we learn to make that choice by experience. Mm -hmm. You know, this wasn't a disaster. I have a great life. I'm, I'm delighted God did what he did. Yeah. The, <laughs> what is it? He meets the qualifications. Uh, <laughs> we can trust him. He is God. We, you know, we, we don't have a better plan than he does. Or, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if he's the divine physician, why do we not trust in his... And see, that's why I think that this constant repetition of, of our past, of the times that he's taken good care of us, especially the times when we thought it was all falling apart and the end was near, and we, it turned out fine. Those become really important spiritual nourishment for us. And, you know, often we get to those moments and we go, Whew, that, that's a close call, and that's it, and we just let it pass. But in fact, we need to work on it hard because the way that our brains work, unfortunately, makes us tend towards negativity. Our brains are actually designed to hold on to negative thoughts. Because, you know, something bad happens, something harmful, it could kill you perhaps. So your brain puts that on, gives that priority neurologically. It puts it right in the front of your brain. Things that are pleasant and good and helpful, well, they're not... They're not a, a matter of life and death. And so your brain gives those less priority. And so it you have to work at it to drag neg negative thoughts from the front of your mind and let go of them. And you have to take the positive thoughts and bring them forward regularly to balance out that natural bias towards negativity. So we're constantly having to push against the negative bias of our brain. Yeah. And I think that's true just whether you're, whether you're just a good psychologist. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if you didn't believe in God, 
just knowing the way the brain works, you'd say that this effort at shifting towards the positive and letting go of the negative is there just to keep my my psychological balance. Kind of like a, I hit every light worked. on the road or man, it seems like all the traffic's in my lane or mm-hmm. it's always rainy when I want to go do something outside or, you know, little things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and think about all the, the negative things that you we hold on to from the past and and nobody who's been married doesn't have the uh, attack, you know, a conversation happens and everything from the past comes into the conversation. You think, I don't know what you're talking about. No, no. <laughs> where, where did all this come from? You know, I thought this was all taken care of years ago. Yeah. And yeah, it's like the file folder opens up. We all have those, not just folders, we have cabinets, we have file rooms. Um, and most of it's negative. And so I think there's this, this constant effort that's necessary to stay positive. And Thanksgiving is our most powerful tool in that effort. You mentioned Thanksgiving, and uh, I'm, we talked a little bit off saying that they're also going after Christmas to basically almost kill the morale of people. I was talking to my wife about this, saying if, if people were thinking of Christmas as what it's supposed to be, yeah. you wouldn't have high suicide rates because you're lonely because all you hear in the media it's family it's family it's all about family your friends and that guy that doesn't have family friends anymore now he's on suicide watch because he's so depressed because mm-hmm. it's not about christ the infant king it's now about family so say everything goes down the way they're talking about with Fauci saying that probably class for christmas might christmas mass might be up in the in the in, for the acts how can people keep their minds focused on the joy of Christmas and Christ coming instead of going into woe is me, yeah. why me type deal. Well, I think we, we really need to shift to that. Say God has something in mind. Let me get on, let me get with the project. Let me see what I can do to make this not only an okay thing, but a positive thing. On Monday, I was talking to Mother Teresa sisters, the missionaries of charity and their job is usually extremely active. They're almost never in their convent, except for mass and prayers, because they're out in our neighborhood, which is a poor neighborhood in Toronto, mm-hmm. um, doing all sorts of wonderful work. But since March, um, they've been under house arrest. And it's been extremely difficult for them. And when I was talking to them on Monday, talking about this text from Revelation, I said, you know, God must have decided that you needed an eight-month retreat. He must have done this on purpose because he, he knew that you were in need of this. Our families are in need of something which is actually peaceful and quiet and spiritual. And if we have to do that at home, well, you know, the early Christians had to do that fairly often. This Saturday, we're having an ordination for my community, and we're not able to invite very many people. Mm-hmm. We're not able to have a reception afterwards. It's not going to be the way that everybody dreamt it would be. What do you do? I said, but you know, the first ordination happened in the upper room. The day before Jesus died, <laughs> you know, many for a couple centuries, a lot of the ordinations happened in the catacombs and, you know, they managed. And I can't help but think getting it ordained in the catacombs must've been a very intense experience. Yeah, and I must threat think, of death about uh, over your head. Well, yeah, or even the, the even at the Last Supper. I mean, it, 
God has something in mind for what we're going through right now in the same way he had something in mind for those people. And so we need to sort of say, how can I, how can I engineer this? What do I need to do to make this special for my family? And I think we can do that. I think we, we need to, instead of trying to pretend that things are going to be normal, we need to say, no, 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 if I have to be in the catacombs, I'm in the catacombs. And, but I'm, I'm going to figure out how to worship in the catacombs, and I'm going to find out how to be joyful in the catacombs. Yeah, I was, th- I was talking about that the other day, and everyone knows that I'm outspoken about this whole thing, but when they say the new normal will bring it back, don't you want the old normal? What if we, the old normal wasn't that great. Now, I yeah. don't want the new normal that they're pushing, no, but no, 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 no. we should try to, you know, make society better in light of Christ. And as as one friend of mine said, we've done a terrible job evangelizing the continent, much less our neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, that this is an opportunity for us in the same way that I think, you know, it's been, as I was saying earlier, an opportunity for the seminary and my community to reach out through through the through the internet, for example. Um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's been an opportunity for families and communities to pull together, to spend time together. Um, I think it's really important that we learn to be quiet sometimes. We live in a world in which quiet is something we try to overcome. And I think that living in a world where we can't manage being quiet without being overwhelmed by the quiet means that we can't really pray. No, you're right. There's everyone's listening to music or you go to a gas station. There's now TVs at the gas station while you're pumping. There's music in a grocery store. There's noise everywhere. Well, you you get together with people. And so I went to visit some, some people um, when things opened up, we'll hear a little bit temporarily. And the first thing they said to me, so what do you want to do? I said, I don't want to do anything. What do you want to see? I said, I came to see you. <laughs> Let's sit on the on the back porch and talk, you know, that's fine. <laughs> and it, I, I sort of grew up with that. Um, growing up in, in a rural place in a basically a Mennonite community. And there are many times in modern society and, you know, a big city like Toronto that I actually miss the simplicity of sitting on the porch and talking to people and watching the fireflies come out. Um, so I, I think we need to rediscover some of those things, rediscover the simplicity of our lives. Um, because with this overly complicated and life that's filled with noise and entertainment, there isn't that space in which we can actually turn our attention to introspection, to personal development, let alone to our relationship with God. So we end up being these sort of stunted human beings who are you know, just constantly entertained and we become spiritually sort of ADHD. Um, and that's, that's not good. Remember the stories of like St. Teresa of Avila getting thrown from the cart in the pile of mud. Mm. And she said, well, if you treat your friends like this, no wonder you have so few of them. Yeah. Uh, there's many times like that with saints just getting bombarded yeah and they didn't have a comfy life you don't i can't pick up a book and see a saint living sleeping on a serta or upset that uh, his uh, bank account's not in the six figures and you know big house they they have problems in in the world yeah. Yeah. how 
how can we change our mindset from this? And it's kind of like in the water we we're in. It's a very Calvinistic, materialistic world. Yeah. Well, even if even if you turn away from that, you turn towards prayer. It's easy to fall into the evangelical thing that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. That if you really believe in God, then God will bless you. Mm -hmm. You know, name it and claim it. Um, my dad is was a Southern Baptist minister, so I, I'm <laughs> in the South. I hear about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were. He was in Bayou de Battery, Alabama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where Forrest Gump and Bubba saved the shrimping industry, if you remember correctly. <laughs> my roots go deep south. Oh yeah. Um, uh, Bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to get over it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that. What were we talking about? <laughs> uh, name it and name it and claim it. Name it and claim it. Yeah. So I think this idea that somehow being spiritual means that somehow it would all go easy for us and God will just give us all the things that will make life cushy and comfortable. Well, no, he'll give us everything that we need. But everything that we need is not necessarily going to be easy and comfortable because we're here to grow. We're here to get rid of a bunch of defects. We're here to go through rehab and rehab is if it's good is probably not entirely pleasant no yeah so when I, someone close to me would say they prayed for suffering and they got a ton of it and then mm -hmm. they were complaining about getting what it was like well i didn't ask for that so what, what did you have a degree did you have a asterisk you asked for this mm -hmm. or there was a line from uh, what was it evan almighty about uh, the late the wife was upset talking to morgan freeman as god Mm -hmm. I pray for, I want my family to get closer together and I pray for this, but nothing's happening because what if these things that are coming to you are ways to build that, like you ask for patience, mm -hmm. things are coming in your life to strengthen patience. You right. ask for, how, how do we get out of the mindset of, I want this right now, give it to me because I asked for it. <laughs> yeah. There's a great th scene in the life of St. Philip when he was living in a church before he had started the oratory. And there's two sacraments there were two religious brothers, but it turned out they, they were not brothers in good standing. They were sort of renegades. And they really disliked him. And they treated him exceptionally badly. Now, when you're going into the sacristy, getting ready to say mass, you really want things to be peaceful. You don't want people yelling at you or, you know. And it got so bad that they actually would, they actually physically struck him while he was getting ready to say mass. And so he went into the chapel and prayed in front of his favorite crucifix and said, God, what do I do? Give me patience. And so the next day he walked into the sacristy and sort of expected it to be better. And it was worse. And he went back to the crucifix and said, I asked for patience, what happened? He says, well, this is what you asked for and this is how I give it. It, it takes practice. Every virtue, except the infused virtues of faith, hope, and charity, take practice. And even the infused virtues take practice to make them grow. They're like muscles. Mm -hmm. you, you, you don't make them grow by laying comfortably on the couch. You have to stress them. <laughs> yeah. Well, in that sense, is it the same way for joy to find, to see joy in dark times, to, mm -hmm. to find it, to look for the good when it seems like there is no good. When do you learn to trust? You don't learn to trust when everything's going well because you think everything's going well for no good reason. Mm -hmm. You learn to trust when it's your last chance. You learn to trust when you don't have anything else to do except trust. 
You learn to trust God when you can't trust anything else. Um, so I think we ha all have to get to that place where we sort of feel at the end of our rope. The end of your rope is actually a very valuable place to be sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, it's a foundation. Yeah, well, you, you in got, a you sense, you can build a foundation when you're on the when you're rock bottom. Exactly, you got to strip away all that illusion that you're making this happen, that you're in charge of things, that the world is a lovely place. Say, well, no, not actually. Um, the world is a pretty unfriendly place most of the time. Um, I often walk through this world and think in rather Star Trek mode, beam me up, Scotty. You know, get me out of here. <laughs> I said that about once a day after I read something just insane. There's no intelligent <laughs> life anymore. Beat me up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is too crazy for me. Uh, <laughs> but, and you know, we're still here, aren't we? And why are we still here? Because God wants us to know that those things were at the end of the world. That's and, another point. Should yeah. that give us a great joy that God thought us worthy enough to put us in this situation we're at right now? Well, I think it should. I think it should. Yeah, many of the saints knew that the end of their life had come because there was nothing left to suffer, that they didn't feel God working on them anymore. And I think we need to take some sort of consolation that God still thinks I'm worth fixing. I could feel him working. Um, and yes, the, to be here at this time, I think is a special time. And those who are there at the end of time That'll be a special time too, not an easy time, but a, but a special one. Yeah, think when of the end of the end of the world comes. I think they'll probably be cheering it on. <laughs> yeah, go, I was thinking go, of, uh, go. <laughs> I can't remember the bishop's name, but it was uh, Saint Theophane Venard. Uh, yeah. That uh, Saint, the little flower. It was the little flower, the little flower. She she loved this guy, mm -hmm. and his bishop in Vietnam would have this. His motto was. Three cheers for joy after something after something would happen. He would say, "Well, three choice, three cheers for joy." Anyways, somebody get martyred, killed, half his priests are getting just slaughtered out there. Three cheers for joy, anyways. And Theophane apparently, when he was death, he was sick all the time and would just be coughing, thinking he's going to die. Mm -hmm. Three, he would just say, "Well, three cheers for joy, anyways." Is it a? Is it not just a mindset, but like those guys? They were, as St. Thomas More would say, they were walking like brides, bridesmaids, or bridegrooms to the wedding. I think they can inspire us that something more is possible, but we can't do it unless it's grounded ultimately on our own experience. And that's where having to find the foundation of trust in our lives is going to be essential. You know, I think they can inspire, but they can't be the foundation of our hope. We have to feel God working in our lives mm -hmm. in the same way that somebody else's experience of God can't make the, me believe. I have to experience it in my life. I ha had one person say to me, I wish I could believe like you do. And what do you, what do you say to that? I said, well, don't say that to me, say that to God. <laughs> and, uh, maybe things will work. Um, so I think that in the end, we have to go back to that personal experience. We have to be able to see it at work in our lives. Because otherwise, to think that God's providential care is something that happens to fancy people like the saints, but not everyday people like you and me, it doesn't really help very much. 
Yeah. How about the thinking that our mind that we're not made for this world, but for heaven? Well, I think that is true, but but in one sense, I am made for this world too, because this world is my preparation for for heaven. So, what really makes this world meaningful for me is that it's a preparation for heaven. And so, rather than settling into this world and making it my homeland, mm -hmm. which it isn't, um, I need to live like a pilgrim. And living like a pilgrim doesn't mean just traveling light; it means recognizing that I'm on someplace, going someplace else. And the journey matters because I'm moving towards a destination. And so I want this life to be productive, not comfortable. Right. Yeah. How and, you know that that doesn't mean just having a nice day. It means having a having a productive day, growing in virtue. And that goes back to us being we're we're Catholics. That should automatically wake up joyful. I remember Saint yeah. Alphonse would write about that saying there's that should make you get up and smile that mm -hmm. you are where you are right now you are you were born in the church and you can think of those guys that he was talking about like the Mohammedans that aren't and compare yourself to them they're mm -hmm. in darkness you're in light so how we should be the joy out in the world we should be yeah how, you know it's one of the interesting things I, I've been just recently I've been working on a lot on Dante and one of the, the really shocking things when Dante goes to purgatory mm -hmm is that he's surprised at how happy everybody is because they're suffering a lot. Yeah. But they're actually very joyful and upbeat. They're all working together. They're encouraging him. They're encouraging one another. And it's like, um, you're suffering a lot. Why are you so joyful? Said, Listen, there's just a little bit of work between me and heaven. And I'm guaranteed to get there. Right, all right. And they're like, what? Of course we should be happy. That's why we call them the holy souls. Well, for us here on this earth, who are struggling to be in a state of grace, struggling to persevere in a state of grace, we should have a little taste of that too. That I'm on a pathway to something much bigger than this. And all these things, they're little things. And in the end, I'm going to forget them. They're not going to bother me at all. And not, not any more than the, that bad interview for the scholarship bothers me now you know, 80 years later or whatever. Um, well, as they say about the the Holy Souls is they're suffering more there than we can ever imagine. So yeah, we, can yeah, merit we can merit here with the mm -hmm. less pain, right? Yeah, that's right. And I think, but the, the interesting thing there is I think we suffer more spiritually because we have, we're, we don't always get the point of what we're going through. So we have this feeling of it's, it's all useless, you know, it's, it's, you know, empty pain, you know, it's, 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 um, think of the way people talk about the end of people suffering at the end of life, you know, you know, they're suffering uselessly, it just put them out of their misery. Um, well, that we often think about that way, think about pain that way, whether it's moral pain or physical pain. So instead of saying, well, no, the pain is not a, not a negative thing necessarily, that's offered to God. Let's make it be something important. Um, about seven years ago, I was suffering from a really horrible sort of headache that actually sometimes would make me lose consciousness. Um, it was bad. And there's nothing really I could do about it except take massive dosages of steroids and hope for the best. Mm -hmm. um, but usually once a week or twice a week, I'd find myself pacing in the middle of the night and then wake up unconscious on the floor. <laughs> um, so the only thing I could think about to do to make it 
really more palatable was to offer up that night for an individual person. And it actually changed things. I thought, you know, tonight is offered up for so-and-so. And then when I had a bad night, particularly bad one, I'd say, well, he must've needed a lot. And you know, I called that person after during the day because it was okay during the day. It was just at night that these happened. And he said, you know, yesterday was such a dark time. He says, but today I feel so much better. I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you begin to see the sort of correspondence between the what you offered and the graces that people received. And it became almost spooky in a nice way. Um, you begin to recognize how much power there was under the surface of all the things you did, but you never got beneath the surface. You bring up that old adage of offered up that we used to hear all the time. And we almost never hear now. When I was uh, first a Catholic, I was in the hospital for, um, for something and I uh, had collapsed lung. I had a chest tube coming out of my chest and somebody accidentally sat on the chest, chest tube when they sat on the bed. And it pulled and it hurt a lot. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah I felt like being stabbed. And in her embarrassment, she said, offer it up. And I said, and exactly where do I do that? Do I like throw it up to heaven and hope that it sticks? And uh, she said, oh, you converts ask the dumbest questions. I said, you just call it dumb because you don't know the answer. And sure enough, she didn't really. Wow. So I had to do this research and figure out for myself that that offering it up is actually an important thing. It's the main thing we're supposed to be doing at the Eucharist. And the offertory isn't something the priest does alone. It's supposed to be something I do. That's why I think it's so important that we change the translation from the sacrifice to my sacrifice and, and yours. Mm -hmm. Because at that moment, all the good and all the things, I've, all the evil I've gone through, all the pain I've gone through, gets offered up with Christ on the altar. And every day mass is different for me because of what i bring yeah so. now, i actually have a quite a few number of sermons on the channel about uh putting your offerings on this on the offertory plate yeah and I, when i'm at mass and i'm trying i try not to scan everywhere but i see a lot of people that say they watch or i mean i don't get to see all the churches and see everyone right, but yeah. when i'm just my own observation everybody's looking down at the book no one's yeah. paying attention to what's going on up there. And maybe they are before. I can't read minds. But yeah. it seems that, again, just people don't know that. Either that or have heard it and just don't put it in practice. Forget yeah. about it. Yeah. It's, a, it's, an, it's such an important thing. When people tell me that Mass is the same every time, I said, nah, not supposed to be. <laughs> if it's the same every time, it's because you're not bringing anything. <laughs> I said, what? I brought my envelope. I said, well, your envelope's not the only thing that happens to the offertory. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's supposed to be more than that. <laughs> I don't mean just putting more in the envelope. <laughs> I mean, putting your life into the into the plate, you know? Yeah, someone don't miss this thing. Don't put the envelope. Don't run it up to the altar and put it on top of the crown. <laughs> <laughs> Especially now during COVID times, you can't charge the altar <laughs> <laughs> charge anyways <laughs> um what are some what are some books besides was it the frank sheet had a book on joyful saints i think yeah. you got yours on purgatory which i have linked underneath it um, right i really encourage people to read you know, a biography of saint philip neri called fire of joy 
um, translated by our one of our priests here, Father Daniel Utrecht. Um, that's a, a really wonderful view of St. Philip living through one of the darker periods of the church's history, right after the time of the Protestant Reformation in Rome, when Rome was, mm, well, not winning any prizes for its spiritual leadership, let's just say. <laughs> it had a problem or two. <laughs> yeah. So St. Philip became the, the confessor of many of the cardinals and, and the popes. And really, well, that's how he became the second apostle of Rome, because he sort of reconverted it from the pope and the cardinals down. Mm -hmm. And to see the joyfulness amidst the enormously discouraging news that's coming out all the time. Yeah. And, and he had a way of practical jokes. He had a way of getting, not only of laughing about it, but getting other people to laugh at themselves in the midst of it all. Uh -huh. And so I think that, that those sort of counter-Reformation saints, St. Saint Philip in particular, um, I see it a lot in St. Teresa of, of Avila, who's a contemporary and was canonized along with Philip. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I really encourage that, that um, the fire of joy. I also really love the spiritual letters of Francis de Sales. I think that they just, well, first of all, Francis was originally an oratorian before he became a bishop. And you'll, you'll see the collar on him. So that's how you know. Not biased um, at all, are you? <laughs> what's that? Not biased at all, are you? <laughs> not at all, not at all. Uh, but it is part of our tradition. And I think he lived it really well. Mm -hmm. And it just shines through his letters. You read these letters and think, oh my goodness. How could you not be encouraged by that? And and so I, I especially the letters, he wrote all sorts of them, but there's a good collection in the Classics of Western Spirituality series. Mm -hmm. Letters of Spiritual Direction, Francis de Sales and Jane de Chantal. And I think they're real treasures. And he so was I, living and writing in the snow, especially when he's doing his, uh, his uh, controversies, writing in the snow, dogs being tacked on him, people trying to kill him. Crawling oh, yeah. over frozen water, trying to get the mass, say mass. Uh, wasn't live, exactly living in an air conditioned or heated apartment and uh, having a maybe the cable went out. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, he was, you know, he was he was bishop of Geneva, where which is under Calvinist control. He was basically an undercover bishop, uh -huh. um, and his pamphleteering ended up winning him being patron of journalists. Um, now his life was he was a missionary. And under difficult circumstances. Um, so when you see the joy that he had and the sort of calm that comes, and that calm came from somebody who started off his life scrupulous and worried. And to see that transformation is really amazing. Amen. Well, appreciate it, Father. Thank you for that. And hope this helps out some folks uh, during the next... Uh, the dark winter, as they've been talking about, that's coming. Which there's all, there's a backstory to that one, by the way, but <laughs> we yeah. won't get into well, that. I hope they all get ready for the fact that they're God's asking them to make a little bit of a retreat during the Christmas season, and a retreat might not be a bad thing for them. Right, right. I understand. Well, Padre, thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs>